Well, good morning. Hello. As Emma said, I suppose you're in for a special treat because I am here to share. <laughs> I want to give you a shout out. Shout out to all of you joining us this morning in person in the middle of a pandemic. Thank you for joining us. Give yourselves a hand. Thank you for coming out and worshiping with us. Shout out for those of you joining us online, just a few places I know of, some people joining us from Missouri and Texas and Michigan. Uh, maybe you had the chance to get away this weekend and you're on the way back and you're listening in the car. Shout out to you. And I just want to tell you, uh, Mount Horeb, that you have been, I've said this before, but that you have been so gracious in showing our family hospitality since we moved here. We've received some cards, some gift baskets and goodies and things like that. Uh, some letters, some uh, like old school physical letters. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And uh, I got this one. It's from Jack and Carol Walston, who are a little bit seasoned in life, and uh, they sent me this letter, and at the top, it has a graphic design of a shoe with fire coming out of it, and it says, to our new pastor who wears cool shoes. <laughs> Sealed the deal, I know. Oh, that's right. Um, people have been so gracious to us. I was in the grocery store the other day, and uh, this woman uh, accosted me, and she said, hey, and I said, yes. She kind of scared me. And she said, you that new preacher from Mount Horeb? She didn't really talk like that. That's just for dramatic effect. And uh, I said, it depends. Have you seen me do anything wrong from the time I pulled in the parking lot till this very moment? And she said, no. I said, then yes, I am the new preacher from Mount Horeb. And she said, well, welcome. We really like you. And I said, thank you. I like you too. So it's uh, good to be here with you again. We're in week three of All the Feels, our series on the ways of the heart. And it's important for us to understand the ways of the heart. And God gave us emotions as we reflect his image, the Imago Dei, because God has emotions. He has deep, rich, and complex feelings. And we are made in his image, so we have those pre-fall. They're not a result of sin, but we have emotions. And what we're trying to do is be able to identify those, name those, and better steward those to, to lead us into healthy relationships. It's probably the late 90s, um, early 2000s, when all this flood of information uh, came onto the scene about emotional intelligence, emotional quotients. And scientists tell us that your IQ is set. Your intelligence quotient is set. You can't change it, unfortunately. Can't change, but your EQ is not. You can change it. You can increase your emotional intelligence. And so all these books have been written about how you can grow your EQ. And one of the things that they're saying, and employers and social scientists agree now, this is one of the factors that sets successful people apart, is they're able to identify and name what they feel, know their triggers, know what sets them off, and then they're able to manage those and respond in such a way that really builds helpful marriages, helpful parenting, helpful teams. It's good for employees. It's good for employers. And so this is something that's so important for us to talk about because we want to be able to do that well. We don't want to just be people who don't know what we're feeling and then we just react. Somebody pushes our button and then we just react and make a mess. We don't want to be people who shove things aside and kind of stuff our emotions down and then it leaks out in toxic ways other times. To put it theologically, if we are the body of Christ, listen to this, then we are representing the emotional life of God to the world. What do they think God feels when they interact with us? 
Is he predominantly angry or stressed or judgy or condemning or narrow-minded? Or is he the God of compassion? Is he the God who weeps, like we talked about last week, who enters into our grief and sheds tears with us? And today, is he the God of joy? Is he that kind of God? What's been giving you joy lately? Where has joy been showing up in your life? Clemson fans got some joy yesterday, put some points on the board. Also, Gamecock fans got some joy yesterday. I'm so happy that I get to preach on joy and there's not half of the room that's miserable because their team got destroyed. So thanks God for working that out. It's a great day to be in South Carolina when both your teams are victorious. So um, what is, what is, how's joy been showing up for you? For me, it's been showing up um, in a fruit tart and in a piece of pumpkin cake, even though the person who gave those to me also said I should be laying off of sugar. Um, it shows up for me in fresh brewed coffee sitting outside in a nice, crisp fall morning. Amen. I've been, come on, come on, you like the fall too. Uh, I'll be listening for you in a little bit as well. Uh, I've been doing some prayer walks around our property in the morning this, this week, and um, it shows up for me when all of a sudden I look to the right and I see a large buck just darting off into the woods. How's it showing up for you? What does joy look like for you? And I'm so interested about this conversation around joy, and I'm intrigued by it, especially as a Christian, because it's one of those things we want to feel. It's one of those things we long to experience. It's probably what unites us all together as humanity, because people, nobody says, I don't want any joy. People say, oh, I'd love to experience that. I would love to have more joy. But how do we do it? Where is it? How do we find it? What do we do with it when we experience it? And we don't want to have cheap joy, right? Joy is one of those things we want to feel. So sometimes we can go at it and we can try to force it and we try to make it happen. And we don't want to have cheap joy. We want to have deep joy. We don't want to have what I call bumper sticker joy, where we have like a cliche pat answer for everything going on in the world and even great losses and tragedy, where we just have those Christian cliche answers. We don't want bumper sticker joy. You know what happens to bumper sticker joy? It crumples when you're in a fender bender, Right? We, we don't want to force it like that, but we don't want to be miserable people either. We don't, we don't want to be miserable people. We have some of the greatest news to share with people around us, and we don't want to mismatch that with our attitudes and our lives and walk around miserable. So what do we do with joy? Where is it? And how do we get it? I define joy like this today. Joy is a genuine response to the beauty of God and the beauty we find in the world. Joy is a genuine response to the beauty of God and the beauty we find in the world. Jesus knew a thing or two about joy. He taught about it. Listen to John 15, 11. He says, I have told you this so my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. He wants his people to have joy, to experience joy. Part of the intention of the teaching of Jesus is so that we might have joy. Now, Jesus was a good Jewish boy, so that means early on, Mary and Joseph would have taken him to synagogue so he could learn Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and they would have taught him Torah, and one of the things that they would have taught him was the book of Genesis, and in the book of Genesis, it's this great epic poem about creation, 
And in the book of Genesis, we find this refrain. After every, and God said, let there be, we find this refrain, and it was good. And God said, let there be, and it was good. And God said, let there be, and it was good. And in the end of Genesis chapter 1 and 131, God finishes his creative work, and he rests, and he says all of it. It was very good. Tov mayod in the Hebrew. Say that with me. Tov mayod. Close enough. Good. It was very good. Augustine said everything that is, is good. And Jesus knew that, and he was taught that, and it was ingrained in him. He didn't only teach about joy, though. He embodied joy. He embodied joy in such a way that people who were considered outsiders actually wanted to be around him. People who were considered pagans and tax collectors actually wanted to be in the presence of Jesus. He was invited to weddings where he turned water to wine, and he was invited to pagan dinner parties. That's like a goal of mine as someone who works at a church, by the way. That's like, that's like a goal. You, ever, you, you know, you imagine someone making a list for the party. Okay, who are we going to invite to the party? Oh, you got the Joneses and you got the Smiths. Do we invite the pastor? <laughs> Said nobody, right? But one of, our, one of our marks of spiritual maturity is something like this, that people who don't think like me, act like me, look like me, walk, talk, and smell like me may just feel comfortable in my presence and feel safe and let down and they might enjoy me and I might enjoy them. What if that was one of our marks of spiritual maturity? I wonder if the motto for the Christian is, hey, joy, the next round's on me. I'd like to deal some joy. I'd like to be a part of a people who experience joy. And I would like to be with people who actually find me and I find them enjoyable to be around. Jesus enjoyed being with outsiders. In fact, it's one of the hallmarks of his ministry that makes us in the church a bit uncomfortable. He seemed to connect with outsiders more than with insiders. What's that? Jesus knew this, that joy is everywhere and it's yours for the taking. That joy is everywhere and it's yours for the taking. And if that's true, here's where I'd like to go this morning. What are some places we can find it and how do we take it? What are some places we can find it and how do we take it? Joy is everywhere and it's yours for the taking. Listen to Psalm 104, 31. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. This isn't a, the psalmist isn't saying, I really hope God likes what he did when he made stuff and when he made people. That's not what he's saying. This is the psalmist aligning himself with the true nature of God who looks out over all creation and says, yes, very good. I love it. Dallas Willard, the author of The Divine Conspiracy, says it like this. This is a world that is inconceivably beautiful and good and good because of God and because God is always in it. It is a world in which God is continually at play. Oh, so rich. Is that how you picture God? A God who's continually at play in the midst of creation? Maybe some of you are looking for something to meditate on this week. How about we bend our minds toward the God who plays over all creation? And if that's difficult to do, open up a window sit outside, go on a walk, and take observation of nature. Watch the birds, watch the squirrels. They're playing, and they're representing what God does. He plays, and over which he constantly rejoices. He goes on to say, until our thoughts of God have found every visible thing and event glorious with his presence, the word of Jesus has not yet fully 
seized us. Jesus knew it was a God-bathed world, and that means there's something in the water, there's something in the air, there's something in the daily grind and the nine to five. There's something amidst the daily chores and dirty diapers and stacks of bills and maple syrup-drenched pancakes. There's a great residue of heaven. It may just be called joy. And where do we find it? My 12-year-old daughter, Taylor Ann, when we were in St. Louis, Missouri, she was a part of a running club at the school called Girls on the Run. And uh, they would run several times a week and they would do a life lesson. And I picked her up one day and we're driving home. And I said, hey, Tay, how was running? And she said, great. And I said, what did y'all talk about in your life lesson? And she said, we talked about feelings and emotions. And my ears perked up and I said, well, what did you learn? And she said, well, we learned that there's no good or bad emotions. There's only comfortable and uncomfortable emotions. And I thought, ooh, I like that. I'm going to keep that, and I'm going to preach it to Mount Horeb. <laughs> there's no good or bad emotions or good or bad feelings. There's comfortable and uncomfortable. And here's the challenge when it comes to talking about comfortable and uncomfortable feelings, that sometimes we take the things we don't want to feel, and because we don't want to feel them, we avoid them or we push them down. But guess what? Guess where the comfortable things that we want to feel like joy come from? They come from the heart. They come from the same place. They're on the same spectrum and same continuum. So when we, do, when we push those uncomfortable ones down, guess what we do? We push the other ones down as well. That's why my first place that we find joy is we find joy in the midst of sorrow. We find joy in the midst of sorrow. You see, we talked about God being a God of compassion, and last week we talked about God being a God who grieves with us. And it's really true that we find joy in the midst of sorrow. Artists, poets, they knew this. Jesus knows it. We find joy coming on the heels of great pain and great loss. David, he was a master of the human heart, and he said, sorrow lasts for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Jesus, a master of the human heart, and he says this in John 16, 20. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. He's speaking of his death to the disciples that he'll go to the cross and they'll grieve because he's gone and they don't quite understand it, but in three days he'll rise again and their grief will turn to joy. But he's not only doing that, he's giving us a template for how grief and joy work together. And he's saying, when pain comes along, if you grieve well, it will shepherd you unto joy. Some of you know this all too well. What if we put it negatively? If we don't grieve well, it's very possible that we don't experience deep joy. You see, I really want to be clear here. There was a, there's a poem by, the, by a, a Lebanese person, a poet in the 18, late 1800s, 1900s, Khalil Gibran. And he said this. He says, the woman said, speak to us of joy and sorrow. And he answered, your joy is your sorrow unmasked. And the self-same well from which your laughter rises was oftentimes filled with your tears. And how else can it be? The deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. Some of you lived it. You know it. And I want to be really clear because I think we often get confused. Sorrow is not the antithesis to joy. The antithesis to joy is not sorrow. The antithesis to joy is apathy. 
What is apathy? It's blasé, lackadaisical, lukewarm. I don't care. It doesn't matter. It's giving up. It's why would I try anymore? The deck's completely stacked against me. There's no point in doing anything else. It's apathy. And my, I venture to say that if we find ourselves being apathetic and if we actually dig past that hard shell of apathy and dig deep to find out what's really going on underneath that, I would wager that it's mishandled pain and maybe mismanaged grief and maybe something that God is inviting us to go back into because like a oyster, we've taken that pain and we've woven a really hard shell around it. But remember, when we do that, when we push that down, we push joy down and then we get apathy. That's why we find joy amidst sorrow. Listen to Zephaniah 1.12. It's called, it's called complacency in the spiritual realm. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, check this out, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. You see, it's apathy. It's complacency. Uh, he won't act. He won't do good. He won't do ill. It doesn't matter. I don't really care. I'm done trying. And I understand this. But I wonder if in order to pivot on apathy and to really find joy, we go back through that outer shell and grieve well. This happened to me. When we moved here, we were in St. Louis about 14 years, and we, 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 we didn't grow up there. We, it began to feel native, though. It began to feel home. And we had a lot of good friends, and we did a lot of our, um, had our children there, and child raising there was still in the middle of that, but a lot of that happened there. And we left a lot of good people. We left a lot of good friends. And so I came here, and July 1 was my first day starting in Mount Horeb. And I remember taking my boxes of books up into my office, and I remember opening my boxes and just looking at these books, and something felt so wrong. I looked at these books, and I thought, these books don't belong on this shelf. They belong on a different shelf. I remember a few weeks after that, there was something heavy in my life, and I couldn't quite name what it was. And I was going along throughout the week, and I just felt this blocker. I had no life flow, no vitality. And I was like, man, I don't know what's so heavy. Coworkers were around me, and they were lovingly saying, hey, are you okay? Like, what's up with you? You seem off. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know what it is. I feel off. And I went in my office, and I shut the door, and my grief just hit me. And I began to shed tears. And I missed all my friends. And I missed where we came from. And it's saying nothing about the goodness of this place, but I just wept. And I tell you the truth, guess what happened after that? It turned to joy. It turned to gratitude. I had life flow again. I felt lighter again. I felt present. And maybe for some of you, you have to go back through the apathy to name the grief, to go into those places, to find the joy, and God's inviting you to do that. We can find it everywhere, but we do find it in the midst of sorrow. We also find joy in the mundane. We find joy in the mundane. First Timothy 4, 1 through 5, I think this passage might startle us just a little bit. He says this, the Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. That should wake us up. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars. 
ouch, whose consciences have been seared as with the hot iron. Now listen, listen to what the teaching will consist of that is demonic that Paul tells Timothy. Listen to what he says. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. Listen to verse four. For everything God created is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it's consecrated by the word of God in prayer. The demonic teaching is telling us we shouldn't enjoy the goodness of God's creation and it's pitting God against his creation, something the Bible never allows us to do. And we look out at all the wonderful abundance that God gives us in family and friends and in homes and whatever good material things he's provided us. And sometimes there's so much teaching that we shouldn't enjoy those things. And I, I don't find that in the scriptures. And 1 Timothy is pretty clear that whatever God gives us, it's, be, it's because he has a benevolent heart and he's doing it with joy and he wants us to enjoy it properly. Joy is in the mundane. It's in the everyday rhythms. It's in the nine to fives. It's everywhere. But perhaps we've become too sophisticated and wise to find joy in the mundane. As we get a little older, it's easy to become jaded because joy seems so elusive. But joy knows that everything God created is good. And joy teaches us to catch our breath at the side of a rainbow and maybe drive off course to try to find the end of it. Joy demands that we run our fingers through water and stop and stare in silence at the stars. Joy invites us to forego the weather forecast and tremble underneath the covers at the crack of thunder. Joy calls us to let go of judging others and humbly acknowledge that we actually only see about 10% of the people we work and walk with every day. And underneath the surface lurks the divine mystery and potential that only God himself has seen. Joy knows it's not just another Zoom meeting, another phone call, another hug, another kiss, another grocery store run. Joy knows that when we mine the depths of the mundane, we find the sacred because every moment is marked by its maker and is lit with the electric energy of the Holy Spirit. Spirit is everywhere. It really does fill his creation. And every moment is pregnant with it, waiting to be discovered. It's in the mundane. Oh, that we would be a people who are struck with wonder again at everyday life. We find it there. My birthday's coming up next month. I figure it's really important to tell as many people possible. That way, if anyone feels the God-given impulse to shower me with some type of present or accolade or something like that, that they could follow that impulse, maybe in the form of gift cards or tokens or um, new cars, whatever the Lord may lead. And uh, I was at the grocery store the other day, and for those of you who get to know me a little better, you'll know that I love going to the grocery store. It's an extreme source of comfort for me. And I finally found God's store, Lowe's Foods. Come on, that's like a little kingdom of heaven on earth. You can get an adult beverage and walk around and shop. You can sit down and have sushi and then order a cake. That place is amazing. So I got ID'd the other day. Uh, for candles. I was purchasing candles, random ID for candles, whatever. And uh, uh, I, I pulled my identification out, my license, and I hand it to the guy, and he looks at it, and he's looking for my date of birth, and he finds it, and he goes, oh, 
And he's startled. And he says, you're older than me, but you look better than me. He goes, you're (laughs) well-preserved. Don't think that I haven't used that phrase a whole lot in my house and at work to help people understand that I am very well-preserved. Now, I have to be honest, I did have a hat on and a mask, so this mustard me is well-preserved. <laughs> Where were we? Teaching tangent. I hope you enjoyed it. Ah, birthdays. <clears throat> Several years ago, I uh, received a present for my birthday. My son, he gives hands down the best birthday presents ever. He was about seven years old at the time, and he asked my wife, hey, what's dad's favorite animal? He actually used to talk really intensely with a lisp, and so he's like, hey, what's dad's favorite animal? And uh, my wife was like, it's a cheetah. And so my son takes our little arts and craft thing, and uh, he goes down into the basement. He's got construction paper and scissors and markers and glue, and he's like a mad scientist just cutting and pasting and marking and drawing, and no one can bother Boaz when he's making a birthday present. You leave him alone. And so he does his, he does his thing, and I come home from work one day. It's not my birthday, but it's just a few days out. And I sit down and he comes up to me. He's like, hey, dad, you want your birthday present? And I'm like, absolutely. I would love my birthday present from you. So he comes to me, his hands full, and he sits on my lap, this very large yellow paper cutout of a cheetah that he had created. And I got a picture of it for you here. And he said to me, dad, you're the big cheetah and I'm the little cheetah. And I counted how many marks are on that big cheetah. There's over 300 spots that my seven-year-old son took a marker and drew 300 spots on that cheetah. And I just began to weep. And I thought, there's joy. There it is. I didn't know it, and it just pierced me through. Joy is in the mundane if we look for it and if we allow it. It's in the midst of sorrow. It's in the mundane And joy is in repentance. Joy is in repentance. Now, you know what repentance means? Repentance means it's a change. You're you're walking in a direction and you've you've been confronted with something. You confronted yourself. God confronted you. And you think to yourself, I don't want to live like that anymore. I don't want to choose like that anymore. I'm done with that. And you turn and you go the other way. It simply means to turn around from the way you were going. And we, God gets great joy out of us when we repent. And God's get, God gets great joy out of anyone who turns and finds him. Joy is in repentance. Luke 15, 7 says this, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This is in the context of Luke 15, where remember, outsiders are coming to Jesus and the Pharisees are very upset with this. So Jesus tells a story and the first story is a hundred sheep are there and one of them leaves. And so the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes and finds the one and then comes back and there's rejoicing. And then there's 10 coins and a woman has 10 coins and she loses just one coin, but she turns over the house upside down, flips over couches, looks in cabinets to find that one coin and she finds it. And then she calls her friends together and says, I found it, rejoice with me. And then there's two sons. And Jesus tells this story to help us understand that Jesus rejoices when we repent. He rejoices when people turn to him. 
my uh, eight-year-old daughter. I'm telling some kids stories this morning. There's a saying in my house amongst my kids, uh, don't tell dad what happened because he'll put it in a sermon. <laughs> it's very true. <laughs> my eight-year-old daughter, uh, she loves to write notes and write little letters. And I went into her room. Her name's Isabella. We call her Izzy. I went into her room this week. She lost a tooth. And so the tooth fairy visited her and she wrote a letter to the tooth fairy. And I have it up on the screen for you and I'll read it for you. It says, hi, Lothar. Our tooth fairy is German. Where's, where's yours from? <laughs> I lost my seventh tooth. And then there's an arrow to the tooth. That's my favorite part of this letter. <laughs> Thanks for answering my questions. My mom asked if you could tickle her on the cheek. Anyway, that's another one of my favorite parts. Anyway, how are you doing? By the way, do you have blonde hair? P.S. I'm not sleeping in my bedroom. She sleeps in our room. And I saw that and I was like, oh, I love that kid. So much joy in that kid. That wasn't the only letter I found in her room. I began to leave her room after seeing that. And by the way, Tooth Fairy's really upped his game since you and I were kids, right? That was a dollar and quarters. I never got that from the Tooth Fairy. That's another sermon. So uh, going along and I'm leaving her room and I notice another letter. And I look at it and it simply says this. Dear mom, I'm really sorry that I spoke to you that way. Would you please forgive me? I would like to go to the store with you. Izzy is hands down in our house, the best repenter in the house. Unprompted. I would argue I'm a close second for best repenter in the house. But Izzy is the first. She's the best repenter. There's one thing. It's one thing to tell somebody something, instruct them, and then they do it. Izzy always does it unprompted. And she comes back and she said, you know what? I was wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Can we go forward? And you know what? I saw that as a father and I was filled with joy. And I thought, oh, it's so beautiful. Spouses, our spouses are filled with joy when we turn and we repent. You say, you know what? I was out of line. I was off base. Those words, I take them back. Please forgive me. Let's go forward. Children, when we repent to our parents and say, you know what? That attitude was not respectful. That's not really who I want to be. I apologize. Let's go forward. Parents, it gives great joy to our children when we say and we repent to them, you know what? I was just stressed and I took it out on you and it's not really about you. That was about me. So please forgive me and let's go forward. How much more so does our heavenly father look down on us and say, oh, it fills me with joy to see reconciliation happening because people repent. It fills me with joy when people turn to me and say, I want an, I need forgiveness because guess what? It gives the father great pleasure and joy to give us forgiveness. I love dishing out grace, says the father. Isn't that what you thought I was about? We find joy in repentance because there's joy in the redeemer. Look at Zephaniah 317. The Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves, he will take great delight in you. Is that your view of God when you imagine who God is? Just be honest with yourself. Is that your view of God? That God loves you and God delights in you. It goes on to say, he will take great delight in you in his love. He will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Do you hear God singing over you, rejoicing over you, delighting in you, saying, you're mine and I'm yours. And this relationship is incredible. 
Do you hear that? Because that's his song to us. That's what he sings. But sometimes I think we need to say this, that sometimes we think God loves us because theologically he has to love us, like he's on the hook for it. So let me ask it a different way. Do you actually think God likes you? Because that's the way I read the Bible. In Genesis chapter eight, even when Adam and Eve rebel and they're gonna need to turn back to God in repentance and they forsake the good kingdom of the heavenly father and they do their own thing, it says that God came looking for them in the cool of the day. Well, what is the cool of the day in the ancient Near East? Well, after you go out and you work in the field and you tend to the land and you're, you're hungry and you're tired and you've been sweating all day, you come back and you find shade and you find respite and you find food and you are refreshed and you play and you share meal together and you talk about your day. And the implication is this, that God used to do this every day with Adam and Eve. Why? Because he enjoyed being in their presence. We have a God who actually likes people and wants to be around them. It should blow our minds every day. Joy is in this redeemer. He's in this redeemer. So what's the difference between Christian joy and non-Christian joy? Is there a difference? I think there is, but what is it? What is the difference? I think it's this. Jesus is the only one who can hold the weight of our quest for ultimate joy. He's the only one who can hold the weight of our quest for ultimate joy. You see, so many times people want to find ultimate joy, but they put it on other things that can't hold them. We have this huge weight of 2,000 pounds of expectation of ultimate joy within us, and we're always looking for something that can hold it. Maybe my spouse can hold it. Maybe my career can hold it. Maybe my family can hold it. Maybe my kids can hold it. But guess what? They can't. They can't do it. This is what the Bible calls idolatry. And how do we know they can't do it? Because if we were to lose them or to lose that thing, we would be crushed under the weight of it. And Jesus is the only one who can hold our quest for ultimate joy. That's why we invite people to Jesus. It's not just because I think people outside of Jesus are just miserable creatures and they don't know anything at all. No, on the contrary, they have a lot to teach us. But Jesus invites them to place their ultimate security in him. And on the grounds of his unconditional love, then we are free to experience joy. And he can hold the weight of it. Then we experience other things properly. Oh, then I find joy where it shows up in God's created order because I haven't placed the weight of ultimate joy upon it. It could never take that, but Jesus can. Jesus says, Put it on me. I'm strong enough. Joy is in the mundane. It's in repentance, in the Redeemer. It's amidst sorrow. It's everywhere. It's ours for the taking. But how do we take it? Because you and I both know it's not automatic. It's not automatic. It doesn't just happen. So what can we do? We must be surprised by joy, I think. I think we must be surprised by joy. We have to allow it to sneak up on us and to catch us off guard. And then we have to let it go as quickly as it came. And for some of us, that means we're going to have to fire ourselves as joy managers. You ever, you ever heard of a joy manager? Maybe you're a joy manager. I can be a joy manager. We're going to have to fire ourselves as joy managers. Joy managers love to try to control joy. 
They love to try to control their environment around them so that joy can happen. And so everything has to fall into place. Everything has to be perfect. All the circumstances have to work out right. They have to get that grade. They have to fall in love with that person. The setting at the table around the holidays has to be perfect. And if it's not, ah, there goes joy. Well, friend, feel free to fire yourself as a joy manager. We can't manage it. We're not on top of it. We can't make it happen. We also manage joy, though, by comparing ourselves to other people. Oh, they seem like such a wonderful person. If I was only like them, if I was only such a good Christian as they are, if I only expressed myself like them, why am I me? And we quench the joy that God has given us uniquely and authentically by comparing ourselves to other people. Or we compare other people's expressions of joy to ourselves. There's a lot of room to express joy in a lot of different ways. For some people, they're loud and they're exuberant and they clap and they shout and they dance and that's them. For some people, they're more reserved and quiet. Like Mary, when she was told that she was gonna give birth to the Messiah, who did what? Went to her quiet place, pondered all these things and wrote a poem. It's a different expression of joy. We have to give space for all these different expressions of joy and not become joy managers. Frederick Beekner, American theologian, uh, said it like this, happiness turns up more or less where you'd expect it. A good marriage, a rewarding job, a pleasant vacation. Joy, on the other hand, is as notoriously unpredictable as the one who gives it. You and I both know it's so very true. It's as notoriously unpredictable as the one who gives it because God himself is unpredictable. When he's gonna show up, how he's gonna show up, it's on his time and on his terms. We understand that joy is not a commodity that can be manufactured. It's a surprise that must be captured. We can't make it happen, force it to happen, or put the right formula in and then get joy. If it were that easy, we'd all be filled with joy all the time. But it's not. We simply can make space for it, to be surprised by it. That's how I think we hold joy and hold it well. And then we're free. Hey, I'd like to create space for it, but if it doesn't happen, that's up to joy. We let joy off the hook. Galatians 5.22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. The fruit of the who? The fruit of the Spirit. It's not mine. It's not up to me. It's the Spirit's work. All I can do is be prepared and create space and look for it. Me and my wife, a few years ago, we went to Iceland. We had, some, we had a tax refund, just a few thousand dollars, and we were talking about what to do with it. And she said, well, I'd like to put wood floors here where the carpet is in the living room because this carpet's all torn to shreds and it's dirty, and let's just put wood floors in. I said, okay, we'll use that money and we'll put some wood floors in. But my wife is also very spontaneous and she's free to change her mind whenever she wants to. So she was doing some research on some things and uh, I come home one day and she says to me, hey, what if we didn't get wood floors, but what if we went to Iceland? And I was like, huh? Iceland? Okay, okay, let me give me a second to shift gears <laughs> and wrap my mind around it. And so we went to Iceland on the cheap. We found these tickets and uh, we went to Iceland and we rented a little go-kart and we stayed in Airbnbs and we drove around and uh, we had this list. We re researched things to do and we had this list that we were checking off and 
We want to see this volcano and we want to go to the black sand beaches and see the black sand and we want to go whale watching. And we did. Every, everything we had on our list, we checked off and we were surprised by joy every single time. Like, oh, look, this is incredible. It was overwhelmingly great. And the last thing on our list was we want to see the northern lights. And it was just at the right time to see the northern lights. And so we stayed at this farm. It's called Valicott Farms. Isn't she pretty? Look at that rainbow busting through. It's called Valicott Farms. And we stayed at this farm and it was a great big open view of the sky. And we got this app and we downloaded this app to help us like, hey, your percentage of seeing the Northern Lights is such and such and such and such at this time. And so we stayed outside and we're looking at the app and the clouds were coming in and the clouds were dispersing. The clouds were coming in, clouds dispersing. And we're looking and we're waiting and we're expecting and we're anticipating and nothing happened. We didn't see him. We went to bed. And I think that that's much of what it's like to be prepared to be surprised by joy. We don't get to control it. We don't get to tell it what to do because we don't get to control God and tell him what to do. But guess what? We can put ourselves in the position and we can get tools and skills and we can do everything that's up to us and our responsibility to say, I'm ready. And we can look and we can wait and we can anticipate, but we get to hold it loosely. And maybe joy shows up and surprises us, but maybe it doesn't. But we don't get discouraged by that because we're back at it again the next day. I'm looking, I'm waiting, I'm anticipating. Surprise me if you want to. You see, we have a responsibility, but we don't have ownership of it. The seeds of joy sprout where you sow them. The seeds of joy sprout where you sow them. There is work to do, and then we wait, and we look, and we anticipate. So maybe some of you are here, and you may be saying, you know, I'm not really experiencing that much joy in my relationship with God. In which the question after that is, well, how much attention have we given to it? Have we done everything on our responsibility to be prepared to be surprised by joy? How much have we focused on it? How much time have we given? Maybe you're here and you're saying, you know what? I'm not really experiencing joy in my core relationships, significant other, best friend, children, whatever it may be. Maybe you're here and you're saying, you know what? Work has just been overwhelmingly hard. It's become a drudge. And the question that follows that, well, how much attention have we given to it to be surprised by joy? Have we really done our part? Have we really done our responsibility? You see, there's no such thing as quality time. There's only quantity time. And quality time flows out of quantity time. And the more deposits we put into those relationships, into those places where we want to be surprised, then I believe the more we will be surprised by joy. So by God's grace, if we give up the need to manage joy, we might be surprised that God really is a joyful God who likes us, who loves us, who wants to be in our midst. We might be surprised that he rejoices and we rejoice when we repent and others repent when we turn to him, turn to reconciliation. We might be surprised to find joy in everyday life. We might be surprised to find joy even in the midst of sorrow. It really is everywhere and ours for the taking. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God of joy, that you're a God of compassion, a God who weeps, and that you're a God of joy. 
And Father, we want to be a people who've been rescued, who represent you well. So help us. Sometimes we don't want to feel the pain, and so we cover that up and go to apathy. Sometimes we blame others around us for not giving us more joy when maybe we need to take responsibility and do our part so that we might be surprised. If you're here this morning and maybe you're thinking to yourself, I haven't really been surprised by joy in my relationship to God in a while. Would you just take some time to pray about that? Maybe pray this, God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Maybe you're here and there's been a lack of joy in a key component of your life and you would love to see God move in that place. Maybe you just pray, God, restore joy to me in this area and that relationship. And maybe you turn your attention and your time to it and you dedicate this next season to preparing to be surprised by joy. Father, it's your free forgiveness. It's your free grace laid down for us at the cross that really sets us free to be who we are, to be who you've created us to be, to experience all the feels, the whole range of emotions, and to experience joy. We pray that we would do that well. We pray that we would be a people who reflect your joy, deep, authentic, lasting joy. We thank you for the forgiveness and the grace that you provide. Would you fill us and renew us once again with your joy? We pray in Christ's name, amen.